Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Diana Marculescu. Diana is Department Chair and Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Diana, welcome to the Twomo AI Podcast. Thank you for having me, Sam. I'm happy to be here. I am super excited to have you on the show, especially since just before we started recording, you mentioned that you're a longtime listener. And I always love talking to listeners on the show and having the opportunity to, to host them on the show. So thank you for that. Being a longtime listener, you know the routine. I'm going to ask you to share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning. Sure. I'm happy to do so. Um, yeah, actually, I've been listening to, to the podcast for quite some time, especially on my trips uh, to conferences. And more than likely, uh, currently, we're, we're not traveling that much. However, we try to do our best to stay up to date by listening to podcasts, uh, especially in this domain. My trajectory to working in this field is a little bit less traditional. I come from the computer hardware systems area. I've worked for more than 20 years on making computer hardware systems more efficient, especially more power efficient. And uh, the way I got to work uh, in machine learning in particular came from the application side. So um, we've used uh, machine learning to make or to perform power management for multi-core systems in the last decade or so. But more recently, in the last three to four years, uh, my students and I decided to turn it around and instead of using machine learning as an application to make computer systems more efficient. Instead, we turned our focus to making uh, machine learning mo models more efficient such that they run better on existing computer systems or trying to find ways to build computer systems that are more amenable to running machine learning models and applications. So that's where the whole idea of uh, the co-design of both the machine learning model and the computer hardware system came into, into play. So um, our first publication in the field was uh, three years ago, and ever since uh, we continue to work in, in this field. Great, great. And you recently had an opportunity to share some of what you're doing in the field at the Efficient Deep Learning in Computer Vision workshop at the recent CVPR conference where you gave a keynote yeah, in, in working in this field and, and talking about issues like, uh, you know, the efficiency of machine learning models, you know, often questions about, um, you know, the edge versus cloud come up. Did your research focus on, you know, one or the, the other of these settings? Uh, sure. Actually, um, both are really important, right? So um, thinking about where we are now, uh, much of the machine learning applications actually do run in the cloud. Um, so for both training, we train them in the cloud. Much of the inference also happens in the cloud. If you're trying to run a speech recognition simple app um, on your phone or smartwatch, if it's not connected to the network, it's not going to be able to accomplish its task because everything does happen in the cloud. On the other hand, our work tries to democratize access to machine learning as an application such that it, it's pushing both uh, inference as well as training to edge devices. So this is where the idea of making machine learning models, in particular neural networks, 
more efficient and more amenable to be uh, run on uh, tiny devices where constraints are really important. So uh, yeah, our focus is mostly on edge devices, although you know, looking at the entire continuum from edge all the way to the cloud is just as important. Mm -hmm. So your keynote at the workshop is titled Putting the Machine Back in Machine Learning, the Case for Hardware ML Model Co-Design. Uh, and it sounds like co-design is a key uh, idea in your research. What it connotes for me is that, you know, often we hold, uh, you know, either one, the machine or the algorithm as fixed and try to optimize the other, you know, with the constraint of the thing that we hold as fixed. And what I'm guessing here or imagining is that you're, treating both of these as things that we can kind of co-optimize together? Is that the, the general idea of your research? That's that's correct. Um, and actually, the co-design idea has been used for quite some time in embedded systems. Um, for a long time, the idea that you want to customize a hardware that runs uh, the embedded software um, has been at the forefront for the last 15 to 20 years in the field of um, embedded system design. So it's not a new concept. What's new is actually putting the focus on the machine in the machine learning domain. And machine has never left, to be honest, the machine learning space, but we're just trying to put um, the focus back on the hardware um, because a lot of the focus that has been happening recently has been on the performance of machine learning applications, meaning accuracy or classification error or things that actually tell us whether it, it does its job in the proper way. Putting things in a historical perspective, um, machine learning and in particular neural network uh, research has been going on for quite some time, but it did not get at the level as we see today without the progress that we've seen in, in hardware um, design and you know everything we've seen from the single core to multi-core to GPU progress. So. It's important to understand that the reason why uh, machine learning applications have received so much attention and widespread usage is because of the hardware. But we're not going to be able to ride that wave of um, dissemination without support from the hardware. So our focus is to put the machine uh, specifics and machine hardware metrics into the design process for neural networks. Uh, and when you do that, you you have one half of the problem you mentioned, right? When you think about co-design, you have to add the other half of the problem. It's not just that the neural network has to be designed with the hardware in mind, but at the same time, we need to design the hardware with the application in mind, in this particular case, machine learning. So yes, co-design is the end goal. And um, we are we are not quite there yet. There's, a, there's quite a few researchers working in this field uh, but there are a few components that are needed before we get to uh, true co-design. And one is um, understanding what are the hardware metrics we need to look at, how do we expose them to the machine learning design process, and then how do we design neural network models that take that into account uh, such that they fit um, the hardware that we might be able to have or we might be able to design for them. So it's, it's actually a, a true cycle, iterative cycle of optimization. Uh, you you say that you know we we need to focus on hardware and putting the hardware back into the process um and maybe i'm asking the the same question again or or maybe i'm just going to provide the answer but my sense is that 
you know, we, there has been a lot of focus on hardware in, in the field, you know, clearly, you know, different types of accelerators. What you're saying here is we've focused on hardware for optimizing hardware for a specific class of problems. This is going to be an accelerator that works well at, you know, deep neural networks, as opposed to what I'm seeing in your research is a specific neural network architecture. We're going to kind of design the hardware for that, kind of design the neural network to work well with that hardware, do all of this at the same time. And overall, we're going to end up with a system that, you know, performs better than hopefully the, you know, things that aren't designed, you know, so in such an integrated manner. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, that's exactly the point, right? So, um, and you're right, uh, there has been a lot of hardware focus lately. Maybe it started a little bit, you know, with uh, proxies, right? They weren't really hardware metrics. There were maybe flops, flop count, floating point operations. Maybe it was um, model size. Um, Maybe it was some sort of proxy for latency. Uh, what we're trying to do is characterize uh, or provide ways or methodologies to characterize neural networks from their latency, power, energy perspective on a given hardware, but at the same time identify ways to build hardware that minimizes those metrics, if it makes sense, right? So mentioning you mentioning um, the talk I gave at the workshop at CVPR, So one piece um, that is required to make this co-design process possible is the ability to characterize uh, neural network architectures or perhaps components thereof in terms of their, um, the time it takes to process those things, the energy or power it takes, and maybe come up with a joint metric that characterizes their energy efficiency or latency per correct inference, if you want. So in other words, come up with combined metrics that capture both hardware as well as accuracy in some sense. So providing that methodology for estimating power, energy, and latency for these, um, it's actually a piece of software, right, that you write, is one of the steps um, that allows us to identify the right configuration or architecture for the neural network, because you can't optimize what you cannot model or characterize. Right. And actually, it's it's easier. Um, it's actually pretty easy to do that. Uh, we've done this for quite some time in the uh, computer hardware embedded system domain. It's much harder to have the same similar kind of model for accuracy. We can't tell how accurate is a neural network until we actually train it. On the other hand, for a given architecture, we can easily tell um, what the power or latency will be for a given hardware platform once you characterize it, right? So it's it's a very low-hanging fruit that we should take advantage of. Mm-hmm. The idea there is expressed in some research that you've done uh, called Neural Power. Is that the, Correct. the one? Correct. Yeah. Uh, and you're, you know, we've previously talked about, you know, characterized neural networks in terms of, you know, things like depth and parameters and layers. Mm-hmm. And we talk about hardware in this totally different language, which is flops and power and things like that. And you're trying to kind of unify the way that we're able to talk about this. And you're doing it using a neural network. Is that right? 
we use well, actually we use it we use machine learning for that. <laughs> so um, we build models for latency and power that we fit using data that we collect from a lot of synthetically generated neural networks and constructs, right? Because we look at different types of convolutional layers, uh, fully connected layers, pooling layers, things that you typically find in neural networks, deep neural networks. So we try to build a power and a latency model and of course also an energy model that captures all those components. And then in a composable fashion, you're able to say, once you've done this characterization and you fit the model once, you can tell just by looking at the configuration of the network, the latency end-to-end for an inference will be this much and the power consumption will be this much. And I don't even have to run it, right? Hmm. So you you uh, collect the data, you fit the model once, and then you use it over and over again. And the good thing about this is that you can use it in um, the optimization process when you do, say, architecture search. Architecture search is very time-consuming. But the fact that you can characterize every single component or block of this architecture space in a you know, zero-cost, O-of-one kind of complexity, it's really appealing because it allows you to put it in this um, iterative optimization process. So that's where... We took this expertise in characterizing hardware metrics and used it um, to identify neural architectures that satisfy hardware constraints. So this is the second part of the talk that I had that talked about neural architecture search using a single path approach. And inside that iterative um, optimization loop, we did have this kind of um, latency model. In that particular case, we were looking at latency on a very specific hardware platform, Pixel 1. Hmm. And so is the idea that that if you're applying neural architecture search without the metrics that you have available via neural power, you would have to run as long and expensive process and come up with a bunch of candidate models that after the fact, you have to see if they satisfy your hardware constraints, but here you're able to integrate it in and in doing so, just kind of cut off some dead ends that you your search process might need to to run through. Yes, that's right. So so you can prune the search the search process by uh, removing candidates that do not meet uh, maybe your latency constraints. Right, you want to have each inference take less than a few tenths of a, a milliseconds. Right, by having this characterization done once and reuse it over and over, you can prune the search process. You can also um, the way we did it, we actually incorporated in our loss function, a term that captures the cost in terms of latency. And by doing so, we're able to basically make uh, the neural architecture search process hardware aware. And there are other components to the uh, approach that we've had because it relies on the concept of a super uh, network that actually shares. It shares weights across multiple different types of structures. But um, I mean, that's that's one one component. But the the, the reason why it's uh, actually pretty powerful is because it identifies networks that satisfy uh, these hardware constraints, in this case, latency, uh, while at the same time doing this in a very efficient fashion. So like you said, instead of identifying a bunch of candidates that satisfy accuracy, and then we check, does it satisfy latency constraints? We're able to do this through uh, just you know, a single process. So it's more efficient. Mm -hmm. 
there's some property of the search space that tells you that if you are looking at a particular model and it doesn't meet your power constraints, some you know, evolution of that, not to, to assume that you're using evolutionary models in here, you know, won't then be better than the thing that you're looking at, you know, like a convexity property or something like that. Is that an assumption or is that a, mm -hmm. something that uh, is just kind of demonstrably true about, you know, these, you know, search bases for some set of models? Yeah. So I think it's it's an excellent question. Um, we just started to scratch the surface on that. Our particular approach is a differentiable uh, search approach, meaning um, we cast the problem as a differentiable function, and then you know you just use anything that works on that, like a, a typically stochastic gradient descent will make convexity assumptions, although they might not be, they might hold in reality, but it works pretty well in uh, in practice. Um, in in our case, you're absolutely right. The efficiency of architecture search comes from two components. One is the search space. So what are the components that we actually allow to be the building blocks for our neural network? So that's one. And the second is how do we do the search? And you did allude to, say, evolutionary algorithms. There's also reinforcement learning that you can use. We use a differentiable, a differentiable approach in which all the choices that we make in terms of the architecture, although they are discrete choices, we, um, we perform um, so a transformation that allows us to, to uh, do differentiable search on them. So apply optimization algorithms uh, that typically are used on, on those kinds of objective functions. So the closest um, or the earliest work that is in the same kind of vein as us is DARTS, which does differentiable architecture search for neural networks. Uh, the difference for, in our case, is the search space. So um, the basic components that we, we consider is, is broader. But at the same time, the way we identify the different selections that take us to the final architecture is done such that um, we share much of the, uh, so for example, for a three by three, five by five, seven by seven convolutional kernel, we basically share all the weights. So the only thing we need to know for a five by five is that we use the three by three plus the outer layer that takes us to five by five. So in some sense, it's less for us to identify. You get, it puts more constraints on the search process, but it's more efficient in the kinds of things that it can find out. So, and it, it is able, um, so our, work that was published last at the ECML PKDD conference last uh, September in Germany, um, and we extended it for, for a journal uh, paper this year. It allows us, this more uh, efficient search process allowed us to find a more uh, accurate neural architecture than in the case where you would have more freedom to search. So I guess it's a fine balance between the exploitation and exploration, and we were able to find that um, somehow, and at the same time, satisfying these hardware constraints in terms of latency. And interestingly, at the time when we did our comparisons, we were able to be better in terms of accuracy compared to the manual, so to speak, designs like MobileNet v2, v3, that, I mean, they're manual, they're zero cost, so to speak, but there was a lot of engineering time, a lot of uh, hours spent by engineers behind those efforts. So I don't. I wouldn't want to call them zero time uh, search costs, but um, you know they're manual, uh, single designs, and then 
you know, we did even better in terms of the search cost and accuracy compared to other types of neural architecture approaches. So because of that, we were able to, because of the efficient uh, um, search space and the way we searched, so the two components put together, we were able to push the search time to hours as opposed to days. So I think that's where the strength came. Um, in only a few epochs, we were able to find this kind of architecture. So those are the two strengths are one ability to characterize uh, hardware metrics inside the optimization process, uh, as well as the second component, which is the more efficient search process overall. Is the resulting architecture that um, you are comparing to uh, whatever your baseline is the output of the single path uh, network architecture search process or do you also, you know, apply other processes to that, like quantization or pruning or, you know, compression, other compression techniques? Sure. Um, I mean, single path NAS does just that, the former. So whatever you said, um, it identifies the architecture. But of course, on top of that, you can perform other things like quantization, compression. There's an interesting question as to whether doing this sequentially, so first identifying the architecture and then performing compression and or quantization leads us to a better result rather than doing it together. Um, I think there's a very interesting, there's some emerging work in that space. Um, we're also looking at ways to identify how quantization or precision might play a role in this architecture search process. But to answer your question, um, you can do this. So once you identify a neural architecture, you can apply quantization. You can apply uh, model compression or pruning, right? Those are uh, techniques that exist. You know, going back to um, the presentation I had um, at the CPR workshop, uh, we did present some of the ideas that we had in that space, um, especially as they relate to quantization as well as to um, pruning, channel pruning. And um, so in the quantization space, the idea, I mean, there's been a, a quite a bit of work, uh, you know, ranging from binarized neural networks all the way to using limited precision, fixed point, uh, limiting the number of bits for rep representation. Our idea was actually pretty simple. So the, the, we published first on this in 2017, and then ever since we refined that further, we wanted to limit the number of bits um, representing weights to a fixed number. Um, and it turned out that in practice, using just one or two bits is sufficient to get the best in terms of efficiency, but still not miss much in terms of accuracy. So uh, the idea is that for each weight, uh, we identify the, say, the combination of two powers of two that when stochastically rounded, uh, give you the best uh, accuracy. So uh, we have a, a few examples in the original paper where we show how uh, using stochastic rounding actually on average will give you, you know, in theory, will give you the same accuracy as the original um, unquantized neural network. So um, it, we call this LightNN, so lightweight neural networks, and LightNNK uses K bits to represent the weights. Uh, we still maintain the activations um, in uh, the original precision. And it turns out that you can get to up to two orders of magnitude reduction in the either power, memory, um, storage, and still maintain um, the original accuracy. So this is pretty powerful. This was for Cypher 10 uh, data set, and then we extended it for ImageNet. 
Um, of course, the downside for using a quantized model is that to actually get these benefits, you will need to build an accelerator that relies on replacing every multiply, accumulate, or MAC operation with these logic operator, operators that just do shifts and adds, right? And GPUs are not readily doing that. You could program CPUs to do that, but might take some effort. So I think the what is out there right now is that if you're going to use this type of quantization, you will need to build a specialized piece of hardware to do it. Um, so there, there will be true accelerators. Um, but I think the results are pretty encouraging for us to continue to do so because it does achieve quite a bit of energy and hardware efficiency in general for not much of a loss in accuracy. From the other perspective, you could also do pruning, right? So you could consider how you want to prune the network. You don't want to lose much in the accuracy, but you want to simplify the model even further. Uh, our work in that space, and actually that, that work was just published in the conference in CVPR as, as an oral presentation. The idea is, so the, the, the name we used is Ledger basically is using a layer-based global global ranking um, to identify where do we want to do pruning. So we do pruning based on importance. Um, so we don't want to prune uniformly across the board. We want to prune only where accuracy is not going to suffer um, the most. And by doing so, you're able to achieve additional efficiency on the model side. And of course, that translates into hardware efficiency as well. So was the name of that paper, Ledger, an intentional head fake to get people excited about some Bitcoin uh, quantization approach? <laughs> Hopefully. I think I think we need to ask my student why he chose that. I, I like the name. <laughs> Going back to neural power and, the, you know, this model for uh, the, the metrics, you touched on the the data source, but can you elaborate on that a little bit? Was it, what did you run uh, a bunch of simulations? Did you pull power data off of actual hardware running? You know, some suite of models. That sounds very expensive and hard. How did you collect data to, to fit a model? Yeah, so um, that's an excellent question. We actually uh, did a lot of profiling. So uh, we started with one GPU platform, and then we added more GPU platforms. And like I said, we use machine learning to build the power and latency models. So we needed a lot of data to train those models. So we relied on profiling on several GPU platforms. We profiled power. We profiled latency. We profiled uh, also memory usage, although we did not use it explicitly, except for a component in one of our in, in, in our models. And also at the same time, we had to profile a lot of the synthetic neural networks that exhibited different types of combinations of convolutional and fully connected and pulling layers, right? So, so we took a lot of effort. That's true. Um, the idea, though, is if you if you are using any of those uh, platforms, you can use data that we collected. But of course, if you want to use your own platform. Um, we, you can use our methodology. So um, our code is available. You can use your own platform, collect, perform the same type of profiling, um, and then fit your own uh, power and if, uh, you know, latency model. So it's a methodology that allows us and others allows everyone to apply on different types of platforms, but it is data intensive. Once you collect the data, though, it's just uh, a one-time kind of thing. Great. And uh, you did that for, is it a handful of, of GPU architectures or, how, and 
I guess how specific is a particular model that you develop to a a hardware platform? Is it kind of the architecture family or is it the, a specific model or generation of a, a platform? How well does it generalize as the hardware evolves? Right. Um, I think that's an excellent question. Um, so a methodology is just is as good as its potential use, right? So, and I always get this question. So, okay, neural power is good, but if I can't use it for my own platform, or if I can't generalize to other types of computer hardware platforms that don't even exist, uh, how is this going to be used? Or how is it going to be usable? And the answer is, um, I think this is where the co-design comes into the picture, right? So um, we've done, we've built this methodology on an existing platform. However, if you are in the business of building specialized computer hardware for machine learning applications, you have an idea, you have a blank canvas that you can start from, maybe not as blank, maybe you start from some components that you want to use. But the idea is that you can decide how you put together this architecture. And there are a lot of interesting ways to characterize a platform in terms of latency and power before it's even built, right? This is what we've done for many years before. Um, I mean, we, we haven't started, you know, we don't build computer systems by building one and then measuring power and latency. We know what those numbers will be at design time, right? So the same approach can be used in this case. Um, I really think uh, computer hardware um, designers as well as machine learning model developers have to work together because that's where the strength comes from and that's where um, the generalizability comes from. You're, you're going to be able to get the expertise from both and come up with ways to do the actual true co-design. So it's, it's a hard problem because the search space will be you know, the cross product of the two. But we've done a lot of progress on the computer hardware side, right? So a lot of the, especially on the edge device embedded systems, this is automated quite a bit. So we can use all the expertise that exists there and then incorporate some of those things in the machine learning design process and the co-design as well. Okay. Uh, so when you combine all these things, neural path, single path, architecture search, the light neural networks, can you talk a little bit about the results you've seen? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what were the baselines? What what did you, were you able to demonstrate, uh, et cetera? Right. So in terms of, I mean, our models once built, the power and latency models once built, they are just zero cost or constant cost. You know, you just plug in the parameters or the architecture configuration and you get the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, you do maybe a lot of work in the beginning, but then it, it amortizes across multiple uses. Um, the neural architecture search approach basically reduced the search time by three orders of magnitude and more. So we took it from days all the way to hours. And there are many reasons why that was possible. One was the way the search space was defined. The second was how we did the search. And of course, the, the fact that we shared these structures, uh, parameters across uh, different configurations helped quite a bit as well. So three orders of magnitude in the search, meaning training time. And then in the inference efficiency, if you look at the impact of quantization or pruning, uh, you can get maybe two orders of magnitude uh, efficiency, especially from quantization. So that's quite significant. We're actually looking now at custom hardware 
that, you know, post-synthesis, uh, post-layout, how much of that will translate into the actual hardware, um, there's still going to be at least 40 to 50% savings um, that still translates because the two orders of magnitude that I mentioned looks only at the computation. There's also quite a bit in terms of storage that we need to capture. So, so I think there's quite a lot of good news. So overall, on the training search side, several orders of magnitude on the inference side, a lot of efficiency uh, from quantization. On the training search side, do you look at like ablations? So you mentioned several different characteristics or several different properties that go into producing your you know, several order of magnitude advantages in, in train time. Is that all or nothing? Is there something magical about this combination? Or, you know, have you looked at the individual tricks that you've tried to apply? And, you know, does an individual one of those get you 80% of the way there? How, how did the, the different techniques come together? Right. So I actually think it's the combination thereof, because there are other differentiable neural architecture search approaches, like DARTs inspired once you do that explicit uh, representation, um, unless you do this super network kind of approach, you, you're not going to get the savings. But at the same time, the ability to consider these specific building blocks allowed us to perform this comparison with MobileNet v2 and v3, right? So I guess you could uh, design your search space differently to make other types of comparisons. The results might be different. But I think the fact that uh, we limit uh, the search space and we also share these parameters across configurations made it for um, the fast uh, search time. And so what is ahead in this general line of research for you and your research group? Yes. So um, we are actually, we have not completed the co-design dream yet, right? So <laughs> because we do have the power latency characterization, we have the, you know, neural network search, uh, we put in the hardware metrics, but do we have a push button solution that we say, okay, my task is this robotic vision application or this AR VR application, and these are my constraints in hardware, and these are my specifications for accuracy for the machine learning model. Just build for me something that does that. We did not get there yet. What I think is needed right now is to actually- Even your hardware constraints are relatively coarse, right? Correct. You know, the power latency, things like that. On a typical, uh, an actual chip CPU, for example, you can get tons of um, metrics and capabilities from the chip itself about, you know, that may impact the way your search uh, operates. That's absolutely right. And, you know, um, everything we've done looks at one machine learning model running on this piece of hardware. And it's ne that's never the case. There are many more things, even more machine learning tasks running. What Maybe one does um, speech recognition, one does image recognition, one does object detection. Maybe there's some sort of multimodal uh, fusion that happens. That's a huge space that we're looking at, right? So... Um, so I think the I guess the goal would be to the ability to say okay these are this is what I would like to run and it's not just one machine learning model maybe it's multiple ones maybe it's multiple modalities maybe it's different tasks more maybe it's the same task with different inputs how do I run this most efficiently for this particular application and by application I mean 
something that is not a platform. Is like I said, it could be a robotic or an AR VR uh, application. So you have the ability to define or uh, design what the platform will be or will look like. So true co-design will happen when we're we're able to close the loop, right? So we're able to say, okay, this is an initial version of the hardware that I think might work. Based on this, I think your network or networks should look like this. However, when I do it again, it looks like the hardware needs to be tweaked. So it's going to be an iterative, continuous process until you get to the right configuration. The question then stands, well, I'm going to build this, but what if I want to run an additional task on this piece of hardware? Will I be able to do so? So one is um, the ability to reach this co-design, but the second one is programmability and flexibility. And that's where you know, there's a balance that you need to, I mean, do you want your system to be able to run these new applications? Or maybe it's the same task, but the data set is different, right? You need to retrain it. Does that affect the way your hardware looks like? So I think these are all interesting questions that we're still um, looking at. Uh, and it sounds like this vein of work is primarily operating under kind of traditional GPU-like assumptions and there are all manner of other proposed directions that one might go uh, with hardware, you know, from kind of graph native implementations and, and other things. Do you think these ideas apply similarly to some of those other types of constructs? Yes, I think that's an excellent question. I, I think we're pretty much, um, I mean, if you look at the classic machine learning research papers, they do run on typical GPU platforms, right? This is where much of the training happens. This is where inference, um, I mean, maybe inference can be done on, or they provide results on other types of uh, platforms. Um, but I really think, uh, so one is, okay, what are the other options for us to go to in terms of the hardware that we're looking at? So that's where accelerators come into the picture. And there's quite a bit of work on that end. On the other hand, um, what is beyond neural networks? I mean, neural networks, I think, are, I mean, it's it's just deep learning has become, I don't know that it's because it's un, more understandable. I don't think it's that. I think it's because it offers quite a rich field of questions that are still unanswered. But there's quite a bit of other types of machine learning models or modalities that we have to look at, right? Is there any computational impact? Of course there is on, on those other ones. Um, is there a role that hardware, computer hardware designers or developers should play in that space? Of course they do. But I think right now, much of the, if you look at 90% of the work, I think it's just deep learning, um, especially vision and you know, no, deep neural networks, neural architecture, search, things that are really well-defined um, and quite a bit of work happens there. Um, I believe there's still quite a bit of unsolved uh, and interesting questions that have yet to be answered in other types of machine learning that perhaps have not received that much attention because they're not as amenable to be run on GPUs, right? Maybe this is why, I mean, there's a chicken and egg. GPUs made put deep learning, um, you know, on the visible end of our attention, but all the others are probably not receiving the attention because they don't really run well on GPUs, which all of us have access to. So I think we can elevate those kinds of machine learning applications by looking at ways to make them more efficient and increase the size 
and their applicability and dissemination. So I think there's quite a bit of impetus in in this field. It's really hard to say. I'm not I'm not going to look in a crystal ball and say, okay, in 10 years, every everything on the DNN or deep learning side will be solved. And then we're going to look at, I don't know, uh, probabilistic graphical models or something. I, I don't know what that you might be. You know I was going to ask, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, well, my students ask me all the time, should I still work in this? Because I don't know if when I graduate, will I still be able to find a job? Um, definitely. I mean, this is definitely going to be a hot a hot space uh, for high tech. Though I think it uh, this is this is conversation is standing out as one of a couple in the past couple of weeks where there was this undercurrent or suggestion of us being at peak deep learning, which has not really been much of a thing in my conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit, you know, it's, that's a lot to extrapolate off of two comments. Sure. But interesting that you're saying that. And so probabilistic graphical models is one of the things that you think about as a, if not a contender, a coexisting thing are there others that come to mind as you know you're worth i mean yeah well closer to neural networks i mean you have rnns that can benefit from much of the things that we've talked about what i think makes dnns and actually rnns as well or anything that has a deep learning component in it like um you know when you look at deep reinforcement learning it does rely on using or encoding the state action uh using deep uh, deep neural networks so I think the appeal of that is that it's a very well-structured um, way to look at a problem, right? Because it, it you, you understand, or we think we understand where the components are. We don't really understand how they work, but we understand what the components do. So um, I think it's people are still going to stay in that space quite a bit. Um, what I think needs to happen for others, and I just mentioned probabilistic graphical models because it's really different, right? It's not as structured, Uh and, you know, when, when people think of AI, there's many other things that, um, you know, are not quantizable as how many Mac operations can you do in parallel or efficiently, right? So there's more on the decision-making side. And that's what makes it a true AI, right? So I think the gap between where we are now and where we could be is quite, quite wide. I think to get or to see more interesting things happen in other types of machine learning applications is a need for those things to, to happen um, more efficiently. And maybe that need is no, not there yet because we can still perform those tasks uh, using existing approaches. Another way to see an impetus in that space would be to have hardware that supports it, but maybe not because of them, because of some other type of... Uh, uh, application that is really uh, requiring that. So I, I think machine learning was the lucky winner of the GPU revolution. GPUs were built in mind with, um, you know, parallelism, and um, we switched from the single core to multi-core, but then multi-core were not enough, and then GPU came into the picture. So can we envision a trajectory like this for other machine learning um, applications? Absolutely. Um, I just don't know. I mean, there's many other things that people are looking at. From the hardware side, I know there's quite a bit of interest um, in removing the memory wall bottleneck, which has been there for quite a bit of time. Um, but to be able to do that, to do processing in memory or to do other kinds of uh, advances in that field, 
you need help from the technology. So I think um, maybe the progress in that space might be slowed down because we don't really have a replacement for our current technology, although it's still working quite quite fine so far. So talking about exponential trends, I mean, Moore's law was supposed to double performance, you name it, transistor density, pick your favorite uh, every couple of years or every year and a half, and it stopped. Um, but it doesn't mean we stopped in in making things more, uh, you know, better and better and more efficient. So there's always something that we can do, um, and I'm I'm really hopeful that's that's going to be the case uh, in machine learning as well. Awesome, awesome. Well, Diana, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's great to learn a bit about what you're up to. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.